The Hard Yards Rugby League Podcast with your host, Lee Addison. Brought to you by rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Your elite rugby league coach online. And we're back for episode three of the Hard Yards Rugby League podcast. And this is our second Heartland edition. This podcast is dedicated to those who do the hard yards in the game of rugby league. I'm your host, Lee Addison, and this is a podcast for you, wherever you are in the rugby league world. We are your advocate, we are your supporter, your voice, and we will always tell it as we see it and where appropriate. Pull no punches. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us again for our second Heartland edition, our third edition overall. Some of the places where we've had listeners so far, Australia, UK, New Zealand, of course, they are our heartlands. But what about these places? Sweden, Ireland, United States, Thailand and Burundi. Um, We won't hide from the issues that you may face, those doing the hard yards in the game of rugby league around the world, i.e. you. Make sure you get in touch because you, the listener, can feature in any episode. If that interests you, contact us through the website rugbyleaguecoach.com.au or email admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Our Facebook or Instagram sites are named simply at rugbyleaguecoach and Twitter is at rlcoach on the net. We'll always use these avenues to give you news of upcoming podcasts. Well, we've got loads to get through. So, we're back to our heartlands and it's time for our opening comments. Fans who go to work all week and dream of watching their favourite team at the weekends are those doing the hard yards in rugby league as much as all the other groups that we've discussed so far on the podcast. Costs these days to watch rugby league are getting higher and higher. So it's important we give our fans the facilities to enjoy the sport in maximum comfort and to encourage them to go to the games rather than stay at home and watch it on TV. Because as we know, our sport is a fantastic TV product. Either way, we want them either watching it on TV or going to the game. Because the game benefits, the sport benefits from both avenues of watching the game. I bring up this because this podcast comes out a week after I visited... Suncorp Stadium for the Magic Round. It's not the first time I've been. I've been hundreds of times. And I've never, ever, ever failed to be impressed by Suncorp Stadium since it opened in 2003, which was my first visit. Let me tell you the experience. The train into Milton, Milton Station, is at worst a 10-minute walk from Suncorp Stadium. If you have a match day ticket, you are allowed on the trains, on the buses, for free. That To get that organised, that involves councils, governing bodies, transport authorities all getting round a table to arrange that. Fantastic initiatives. And one that is actually common in other parts of Australia too. Once getting off the train at Milton, you can't fail 
to find Suncorp Stadium. Once you get to Suncorp Stadium, it's well signposted. My friend said, can we find a good meeting point? Everyone knows you meet at the Wally Lewis statue, but I thought, for my friend's sake, who's never been to Suncorp Stadium before, I'll check to see if it's on the signs. You know the signs that say, you are here, and this is what's around. And of course, every single statue in the, around the stadium was mentioned on the sign. So I knew my friend would find me. Went inside the stadium, and if there's one slight minimum minimal negative is that we were told on our ticket to go into gate E and our seats weren't there nobody had stolen them they were just in a different part of the stadium to put that in some kind of context for you if gate E is at 6 o'clock on the clock face our seats were at 3, at three o'clock we're both able bodied it's, it's fine to walk but it gave me a good chance to think about you, the listener, so I can assess, or reassess, sorry, how many bars, how many bathrooms, etc., etc., there were at Suncorp Stadium in that walk, which was essentially a quarter of the stadium. Another thing I need to add at this point is that you can literally walk all the way around Suncorp Stadium on the, sun, on the, on the concourse. So I was to meet a friend that I'd not seen for a long time and, and I just knew that I could get to him wherever he was in the stadium. The place is chocker block with food bars, drink bars, amenities, as in bathrooms. Not only that, the types of bar that are available to you are, are plentiful too. There was one sit-down bar where you could sit, just like being in a pub. You could sit, look at the big screen uh, and watch what was going on on the TV until the game started. We got to our block where we were sat, very easily signposted again. A customer service steward, probably one of the best I've seen. Literally could not do enough for us and for other people. You could tell he was a regular, people knew him. Showed us to our seats. Leg room, fantastic. I've got quite big chunky legs, so I feel these kind of things. And um, I think one of the worst stadiums in rugby league for for leg room. Well, it's, it's not a rugby league stadium. It's Old Trafford the, the, where the Super League Grand Final is played. The views from Suncorp Stadium basically are clear wherever you sat. I believe high up in the grandstands it can be quite tough because the players look small. But where I was sat, you felt you were on top of the get of the players. You felt you were almost on the field. I was nearly ready to take a hit up. Any drinks, food, or if I needed a bathroom, no more than 50 metre walk. This stadium was built in 2003. If you've never been to Suncorp Stadium, if you live outside of Australia, honestly, make it a plan in your life to visit at least once if you can. To me, it's one of the benchmark stadiums. And a stadium, Stadia is quite a, a topical thing at the minute because of the recent opening of, of the Parramatta Stadium. Journalists have been saying that it's, it's going to sort of reignite the passion for people visiting the football because of the high facilities. In this day and age, in the 21st century, our fans are consumers. I keep using that term on the podcast. And 
they are quite discernible with their dollar or pound and you need to put on this level of comfort for them and hopefully our game is continually trying to address address this issue and making stadia more and more comfortable and the and the surrounds i.e. get into the games where you park etc etc um started with a stadium issue but obviously i need to go back to development fees as well since we talked about them in episode one the phone's been ringing the emails have come in i've been having chats on the sidelines of of games around the communities of, of rugby league uh one club administrator one junior club administrator wrote to me to tell me that he's trying to sign two players to his club so for those in England and a junior club in Australia is is sort of thought of as a community club in England or an amateur club um and in New Zealand it would be a Teatatus and your Glenmores that kind of that kind of club he wanted to sign two players but they'd played representative football they played in the under 18s Malmeninga competition the fee for each player was $5000 but here's the Here's the crux of the matter. One of those players had played five rep games. Another had played one. So for a grand total of six games, these two players who were brothers uh, have a fee on their head of $10,000. <clears> Pardon me. Needless to say, that's a, a wrangle between two clubs now, two Queensland Cup clubs, and these kids are sat on the sidelines. Tell me why that's good. Another club member, this time from a Queensland Cup club, so the level just below the NRL in Queensland and the equivalent in New South Wales is called the New South Wales Cup, is telling me that, on the condition of anonymity, that it's not the clubs driving the development fee issue. It's the governing body. So we refer to the QRL, but obviously... The same could be said for New South Wales Rugby League. He also said that New Zealand Rugby League are really driving this hard. The figure he mentioned was £7,500. So, uh, dollars, sorry, (laughs) wrong country. Um, $7,500, and to be honest, $7,500 and $5,000 is the figure that seems to be knocked around the most. He told me a story of one player who moved over to be with a family member in New Zealand and the club never approached him to play, they didn't know him but this this boy turned up at a trial, an open trial turns out he could football and they wanted to sign him that player had a big fee on his head and was sat out for several games before it was sorted apparently the clubs don't want this it's coming down from the governing bodies one club is sat I've been told, on invoices, and owes $70,000. Wow. The clubs aren't happy, on the whole. How can the issue of players be sat on the sideline be good? Of course, we know why this rule is in place. It's to stop clubs dominating. It's to stop clubs getting all the best players, if they have the best facilities, the best coaches... The best opportunities. It's to stop clubs dominating and to make sure the competitions are evened out. And also to make sure make sure juniors stay in their area. But as I said on the last podcast on this issue, 21st century, 
People do move around. In the case of a, a boy going to move for a, with, to a family member to leave New Zealand to go to Australia, not the club's fault, and they've ended up putting a fee on his head. This, this is a classic example of why this development fee rule needs a 360-degree review. Not a review by a couple of suits from the QRL, New South Wales Rugby League, uh, who have vested interests, I suppose. And I mean that in the nicest possible way, because they, they have an employer. It needs a 360-degree review from every stakeholder in the game, a, a cross-section of the, of the game. Because nobody wants to see one or two powerful clubs dominate all the time at the junior levels, the junior rep levels, that is. And it goes up to the age of 21, this development fee thing, by the way. Nobody wants to see that. But at the same time, nobody wants to see players sat on the sidelines. They are the big losers in all this. And this issue is not going away. It's not going away because I want you to think for one second about where the club's might have a problem with this too. Imagine you're a Queensland Cup Club, New South Wales Club, Cup Club, and you're not sure if a 16-year-old, 17-year-old is going to turn into a first grader or if you're an NRL club and you're thinking, you're not sure if they're going to turn into a first grader, but you're keen on the player. There could be a fee on seven, of $7,500 on that kid and you're not sure how he's going to turn out. I mean, what a big expenditure... That is for a club and a big risk. What also interests me is that the governing bodies are the ones sending the invoices for this. So it might give you some kind of indication as to why the clubs are rallying against this. Because even though the governing bodies get the money originally, they do pass them down to the junior clubs. The junior clubs are the beneficiary. But you know what the first person who wrote to me said, the guy from the junior club, he said... We don't want to benefit financially. We just want kids to play the game of rugby league. And that is the key issue that we need to hook on to when we think about this, in, in our opinion. Kids are sitting out because of development fees. Join us right in uh, admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Uh, get in touch with us on social media if you had a, you've had a story around development fees. If you appear on the podcast, we'll give you a free membership to rugbyleaguecoach.com.au worth $149. We're not going to let go of this of this issue. We're passionate about it, but we're going to argue uh, c- c- constructively and without personal gripes with anyone we're gonna we're gonna construct a good argument here and hopefully get a 360 degree degree review loads of content this week extra long podcast so we're just gonna whiz through it first person uh, our coach steve peoples for the coaching segment i have on the line my ned kelly lookalike mate one of my good mates, and we talk grateful. We are trying to make sure that this comes across to you on the podcast. Mr. Stephen Peoples Esquire, how are you? Good, you mad pom. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm really happy because Man City won the Premier League, as you know. Which team, yeah. which team are you pretending you followed this season? <laughs> uh, I, I follow the other the other Manchester team, unfortunately. But um, we'll, we'll, oh, we'll let I, you I don't want to. I don't, don't want to depress you and talk about their season. 
Um, Let's get straight into the coaching talk because we got rave reviews from our pre-record that we played last week, mate. So I think you're going to be a really popular uh, guest on this podcast. Um, First of all, development fees. I'm going to town on them in my opening comments again. What's been your experience from your time at East and maybe Redcliffe before then? Good and bad, mate. Good and bad. Uh, I think it's evolved over the years. It's it's sort of, be, you know, it's turned out from what they used to call quarantine lists into now paying obscene amounts of money for young players that we never really know what's going to happen, you know, two years, five yeah. years, ten years down the track with. But I, I, I can honestly see the positives and the negatives with it and I can, I can see why these rules are enforced and that's purely from an administrator's point of view. If I was to put a parent's hat on, then I can I can certainly also see why there's been a lot of uproar um, around that issue. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's something that I'm, I'm sure will create a lot more heated topics of conversation going down the line. <laughs> I'm, hoping it's got, I'm hoping it's got at least 10 weeks worth of... Uh... Yeah, no, mate, it's, it's, I think it's definitely something that you're going to get a lot of uh, longevity out of because the issue's not going away anytime. No, 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 it's heating up a thing. Um, the, the, enough for that, let's talk football, which everyone wants to hear us talk about. Um, you were telling me last time I saw you that you spent some time in some changing rooms listening to some half-time team talks now. Um, my favourite ever team talk that I remember as a player was uh, a coach told us to take all our shirts off and, and screamed at us to look at the badge. And one yes. of the players dropped his shirt and we, <laughs> we were all creasing our mouths up trying not to laugh. That's literally probably one of the only ones I can remember. What what about yourself and what have you seen in recent weeks? Oh, just, in, just in recent weeks, and I, I think I've spent a little bit of time at, at the the, gra- the grassroots level just recently, and I think it just comes around the education side of things and realisation for, you know, inexperienced and experienced coaches, just, just what you can get across to your players in a, in a very short amount of time. And I, I think that it's something we can all certainly be better at. But I would suggest just as a coach, we need to have a bit of a plan as to what we want to actually do want to try and get across to those players at half What kind of plans have you worked to in the past, mate? Oh, I think, um, you know, talking to a lot of other coaches and, and it's what works for you and what sort of rapport or, or how you get across to your players. But I'm, I'm always a fan of the good, bad, good theory. I think that, you know, start off with a positive and maybe allude to some things that you, you could do a little bit better, but leave them with something to, to run back out on the field with that, that, you know, they might feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof with. Because I think the, the old adage is, you know, they're only going to remember the last thing that you say. Yeah. So uh, a little bit of advice for, I suppose, younger coaches because, you know, starting off in the game is that, you know, you know the, the big spray or the big emotional, inspirational halftime talks isn't necessarily what you should be always looking for. It's just a matter of reiterating points that you've made before the game, during training, during the week. If things aren't going so well, pump their tyres back up, get them back out there because... We, we can't really control what's going to happen in that next 30 or 40 minutes, regardless of what, what we do say. But what we can do is is just, just reiterate some positive messages and, and things that we've gone over during the week before the game. When You've been spending a lot of time sort of looking at coaches, both in your career and in your voluntary work as well. What do you think has been the sort of big evolutionary point of coaches during your lifetime? So, uh, not evolutionary point, sorry, just the big ever, ever, evolutionary Points, plural. Um, oh, mate, I, I think 
if if if, I, if I'm going down the track you're going down, as I think it's 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 how much access we have to stats now. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I just think that we we get armed with all these wonderful numbers at a half time completion rates and and post contact meters and all well, this stuff. Well, let me interrupt and... you there. What about the? I mean, this isn't uh, grassroots stuff, but. Anthony Seabold, despite his team conceding 30-odd points the other week against South Sydney, managed to tell the world that his team had a 96% uh, collision success or something. I mean, what's all that about? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess when we go back and look at the video, it's it's a nice point to show the players that they had, uh, they had you know, uh, a tackle efficiency rate of 96%, but the other 4% left. <laughs> 36 points, so I, I don't know what, you know what you draw from that, mate. But, <laughs> but, uh, it was one of the most crazy comments I heard. I mean, that I suppose the reason I brought that up is that I suppose stats can tell lies as well, can't they, sometimes? They're not... Oh, they can be really blinding yeah. to yeah. the loss or the win, and, and I guess it brings you back to the halftime stuff, is that it, you know, there's always things to be worked on, and there's, and, and just remember, there's always things that you know, that you can pump the, the team's tyres up, whether it's individual or the team. Um, but like you said, stats can certainly tell a, tell a lie when you're not really looking too deep into it. It masks a lot of deficiencies or, right. or strengths, for that matter. That's right. I think we've lost Steve there. Um, no, no, you're still there. No, 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 you got no, me. You got me. Um, yeah, good. That's all you're basking in, in the glories of uh, last night's yeah, triumphs in England right. and um, the, um, clouding, clouding. It's a, lot better, it, it's a lot better access than we had with Paul Yumby from the Cameroon. His was really scratchy. Um, all right, we'll try and get this other question in. Uh, we have sort of mentioned stats as one evolutionary point. Um, the other one that I've sort of come up in my head while I was talking to you is video and images, mate. I mean, how much of a role have they played in your coaching career? Yeah, I've sort of, as I've gone on, and I've, and I've been fortunate enough to gain, you know, uh, some 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 great coaching positions, whether it be head coach or assistant coach, or even just being involved in the setup. I, I think now with the video programs at a coach's fingertips, and and how quick they can access uh, an individual's highlights, whether it be runs or tackles, or um, even breaking it down to transition sets or. or, or you know, get out sets, whatever. I think that's certainly been something that's um, brought the game along in leaps and bounds. Yeah, definitely. The video certainly doesn't lie. And if the video was, if no, that's if, you if can't, the video you can't was hide. You, Steve, then the whole world would know that you look like Ed Kelly, mate. Great, great <laughs> chat. Um, I know that all my podcast listeners have been really positive about what came out of your mouth in the last interview. So hopefully, hopefully they'll look. I'm loving, the, I'm loving the hard yards, mate, and uh, you keep up all the good You've work. You've been doing hard yards yourself, mate, so keep at it. You're doing well. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Good on you, mate. Yeah. Great to speak with you. Bye. See you, mate. We've got that much to get through this week, so much to talk about that we're going well over our normal hour, so obviously this will uh, be enough for hopefully a couple of journeys to work or to work and back from work or a gym session, maybe train longer in the gym while you listen to us. We're now going around the world and we're also going to talk to our girls' correspondent. So we've got our Australian correspondent, our New Zealand correspondent, our English correspondent that we didn't have last time, 
and we've also got our girls correspondent. Where should we go first? Why don't we try New Zealand? New Zealand, calling New Zealand is my man, the rugby league legend that is coach Mike Cudd on the other line. Currently. Ah, uh, well, thanks, mate. How's yourself? Yeah, I'm okay. What's the weather like in the land of the long white cloud? I need my weather report wherever you are. Yeah, we go in the pretty world. good today. We had a bit of a storm blow through on the weekend, but other than that, it's yeah, just been a few cold nights, but your yeah, days are pretty good. <laughs> um, what's been happening in your rugby league and coaching world in the last Well, oh, as weeks? I said last time, I, I shot down to that development conference, but I'm working on primary school tournaments at the moment, so we, we put primary schools together okay. and uh, have a bit of a festival day, just uh, interacting with kids with the game. Okay. Okay, and you're seeing some good talent there oh, already? Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I call them festival days because I don't want it to be about competition too much. Uh, let the kids play. They'll soon discover their own ability in there. I think we uh, overcoach them and steer them too much. Uh, takes all the fun out of it. So that's like playing chess with the kids, isn't it? So, yeah. Let me, t- let me tell you something. If you, you know, using Queensland as an example, who are not that far off winning uh, 10 out of 11 Origins or whatever it was, you watch somebody like Jonathan Thurston, he looked like a player who was just literally having fun in a park yeah. when he played because he wasn't overcoached. And that's what you're referring to, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's, it's how kids learn. I think if you just coach and coach them, um, they don't have time to interact. Hey, we learn by our mistakes, learning off each other. And when it's having fun, uh, yeah, you're, you're likely to put a lot more in if it's all hard work and, and getting growled. Um, yeah, you, you tend to not come back the next year. So I do a lot of work with changing behaviours of coaches and, and people involved in rugby league to um, just let the kids play, let them enjoy it, spend your time to get let's, serious about it. Let, 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 let's give the people around the world a bit of an idea of, of rugby league in New Zealand. So you've seen rugby league in Australia, you've seen it in New Zealand. When I went to New Zealand uh, first time, uh, I was very impressed by the playing talent on show. There's lots to go around. There's certainly far too much to fit into one NRL club, but there is, I suppose, a little less tactical sophistication and speed compared to Australia. Would you say that's oh, fair? Definitely. Comment? The Aussie kids are incredibly skillful, and I think that goes back to the, the coaching of coaches and, and what what is available um, to them. We're certainly upskilling here, and I'm, I'm noticing that change, like, um, as you know, my son, 19 now, but all the kids from his team mm. that I was taking at under eight through to 12, 13s, millennium babies, actually, they were all born 2000. The skill that was... <laughs> yeah, Scary, that. Pretty talented. <laughs> um, but the skill that's come through them with the change of style and coaching and about skill and tactical, um, now that those all those kids are actually hitting um, the, the top side or premier status now, um, the spark that they're putting into the those squads and the vision... Um, it's quite impressive. I have a look at my page, and I've just posted up about well, six, eight kids that were in a, a team that was under 12s, um, and they're all managing to cut the top sides now. And, yeah, they're giving the old men a bit of a run for their money. The only problem is when the old men get their hands on them, <laughs> but uh, they're pretty hard to catch. It's a, it, it's a great breeding ground, isn't it? Because I was sat at the uh, Magic weekend this weekend with a friend from New Zealand, and he, I said to him, I said, how many of these players in this game are from New Zealand? He did a quick count of the first game. He yep. counted 11. 
In the second game, he counted six. So that's 17 players. That's an NRL yep, squad, basically. For sure. A quarter of the of the players who were playing in the NRL on Sunday. What a fantastic, what a fantastic breeding ground New Zealand is. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, and opportunities for our, our youth not to uh, end up in factories. I mean, um, you don't have to play on TV to make a decent wage with with rugby league. And, That's and right. part of teaches that plan B. You know, if the kids have got big goals. Um, they're going to make a million dollars and be on TV. But reality is, is we can, we all can't do that. Um, so I'm, I'm big on teaching them. Hey, just keep doing what you're doing, and you know you can still be a professional football player. Um, and most of them do end up in that sort of position. Last time we spoke to you, Mike, uh, this will be the last question. You were heading to a conference um, where all the development managers were getting together to share best practice. Can you give us a few examples of what you picked up? Yeah, no, great weekend. Um, some really talented old schoolers around the country that uh, wealth of knowledge. So was, I like drawing off them. And and you know and inciting a few fresh ideas, um, like we said, changing behaviours. Um, we're we're big on coach conduct and the way they coach our kids. Um, so we're trying to get what we call a, a coach on in development. You know, the environment of development versus performance. Yes. Um, you know, not just pass it to Johnny because he's the best player, but incorporate everybody. Um, then the way that we actually talk to them. So we we try and pull information out of them rather than push it on them. Um, yeah, the way people learn is if I stand there and talk, you're going to hear ten percent of it. Um, if yeah. I ask a question and involve you, and then let you practice it, you've usually got it on lock. So, I'm trying to teach coaches how to be you know, their coachability, how to teach. Um, that's a big part of it. Behaviors on the sideline, which I think can be an issue all over the world. Yes, um, of course. No, it's not okay. Um, we lose referees because we abuse them, and. Um, you know, they might be shocking referees, but they're not going to get better or come back if we abuse them. We need to upskill them. So, um, yeah, do a bit of work with that. Um, something that's big at the moment is, is player retention. And then that goes back to coaching. If you're the first experience that somebody has, uh, are they going to come back next year? If you make it fun and, and yeah, something they yeah. love, they'll be back. And they'll love rugby league for the rest of their lives. If it's a poor experience, a sad coach, um, I don't like that game. So we try and take a bit of that out of it. Because we coach coaches, so we can't coach everybody. So it's what we try and put into key coaches that will pass on to other coaches. Um, and from there, uh, we're doing a, a little bit on what we call um, leadership through league. And so that's where we um, try and get maximum output of what we're doing by going into colleges, which is like our high schools, mm. teaching them the skills of rugby league, but then getting them to coach the primary school kids. So where I could go to five lunchtimes a week, if I can get a school involved and upskill those kids to coaching, hey, that could be 10 primary schools that I can connect to. So we're getting better coverage through that. And it also empowers the youth um, at that sort of 15 to 17-year-old range, um, leadership skills, self-confidence, teaching, um, confidence. Yeah, it's, it just works. Um, takes a little bit to get off the ground, get schools to buy in. But once you get it, you know, like I said, you're, you're getting really good coverage. So we were just sharing ideas on best practices there. Which is good. Good for the game. Mate, um, well, you're obviously doing something right in New Zealand. And you keep putting in the hard yards. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Take care, Mike. Take care of the family. We'll speak to you in a fortnight. No worries, mate. Have a great week, eh? And you. Take care. Cheers. From New Zealand to the old dart, introducing our UK correspondent, 
well-renowned, well-respected, fantastic journalist, Phil Kaplan. I have on the line, all the way from the mother country, an old friend of mine that I've not seen or spoken to for a long time. And now we've spent the last hour trying to get this interview up off the ground. This is uh, a well-known media man in rugby league circles in England, Phil Kaplan. How are you, sir? I'm very good and good to uh, finally converse with you through all the technology. <laughs> now, um, first question. I'm sat here with a T-shirt on in Brisbane, even though it is getting a bit chilly. But you're coming into the summer in England and I can see uh, through the video on Skype that you've got a jumper on. So can we have the English weather report, please? Um, and whereabouts are you in England? Yeah, I'm situated in the beautiful garden city of Leeds, where for oh. the, uh, the the past week it's been pouring down with rain, even though we have had the Maybank holiday. Uh, Rumours that it might get warm again next week, but currently round about 10 degrees and uh, getting excited about <laughs> going to the, the Wembley of the North that is Oddsall later this afternoon. <laughs> Well, of course, we had the anniversary of the uh, 104,000 not so long ago. I think it was last Monday. Um, 60 years yep. since that, the, there was 104,000 people. And um, I'm sure you're part of the camp, too, that says there were a lot more than that from, from what you've heard. Well, um, yes, a, a gate was broken down and the rumour was there were 120,000 there. The wow. only even more astonishing thing about that figure was there was an actual transport strike that day. So most of the people that went from Halifax and Warrington walked to the game. Unbelievable. That's a bloody long walk from Warrington, let me tell you. Halifax, not too bad, but but plenty of hills. But, but Warrington, what a walk that would be. Uh, Phil? How long have you been involved with rugby league media for over there in the UK and what and what you're currently up to? Uh, probably too long, people would tell you. Um, started <laughs> writing programme articles in the mid-1980s, mainly about how the game needed to expand, and it still hasn't. Um, no, and then got no. into trade the trade press, reporting on matches, doing player profiles, written some books. Uh, currently, we're producing a, a monthly magazine called 4020. Um, yeah. And we've got uh, some published books uh, through Scratching Shed Publishing, quite a few of who, which are on uh, the great sport of rugby league. So that, this, is, this is keeping you very busy by the sounds of things. Um, uh, I got to know you. Um, I mean, I obviously read the League Express when I was a kid and ended up doing a little bit of work there. But I actually got to know you through our sort of combined love, if you like, of the summer conference. I mean, what, one of the reasons for this podcast is to teach Australian, New Zealand people and anybody around the world really about English Rugby League, because you'd be amazed how much they don't know and vice versa. So I teach the Australians and everyone else about the New Zealand game and everyone else about the Australian game. What what can you remember about the summer conference and how it all started and what was your involvement? It was incredibly revolutionary um, mm. and actually created a, a governance model that I think the game has missed out upon since. Um, to give it a bit of context, it, around about the time that Super League moved to the summer 1995-96, there was a growing realisation that uh, at community level, there was no longer a conflict with rugby union. Um, yeah. they'd, gone, they'd gone professional as well and realised that a lot of their club resources were wasted uh, during the summer months and, and hit upon the idea that actually maybe getting a rugby league club as part of their uh, their union setup would actually help in any number of ways, but not least 
economically and as a as a finishing school for some of their players. So there was yeah. a, a, a latent interest, I think, in at club level in what we would call development areas, as in outside of the north of England, there was an opportunity to to play the game of rugby league in the summer. And there was a willingness, facility-wise, of rugby union clubs to become involved in that. And I think that was spotted quite quickly by uh, the RFL, who had a development officer called Tom O'Donovan at the time, and also Neil Tunnicliffe, who was the chief executive, who could see the value of it. Um, yes. And initially through Barla, but that only lasted for one year. Barla was the governing body for the, for the amateur game. They did a trial season in 1997 of some clubs in the south of England that might be interested in playing in a more formalised league. In 1998, that was passed over to an independent management body under the, the auspices of the RFL. I think there were four of us that were the management committee. My, my involvement was in... <laughs> being asked to look after mainly the, the media side of things and promote the competition. But it took off. Um, I think within five or six years, there were there were 200 clubs playing. Um, and initially, it clearly was style over substance. You know, there, there wasn't um, too much scrutiny over how many players there were in each team. But the leagues formed regionally. Um, and the, it enabled the RFL to say pretty quickly that, Every county in England, and it included once the uh, the competition really got some traction, Wales and Scotland as well, were playing in organised leagues um, over a weekend throughout the country, leading to regional playoffs and a real grand final day named after the wonderful Harry Jepson, who was made the president of the competition. And and it just gathered momentum. You could see the results on um, what the, the equivalent of social media in those days. You remember it, good old CFAX. Yeah. Um, reports were carried in the trade press. Um, yeah. Clubs were formed that got players involved who subsequently became household names. So Daryl Griffin started as a winger at Oxford Cavaliers, obviously had a, right. a fine professional career. Louis McCarthy Scarsbrook, Tony Club went down to Greenwich right. Admirals, uh, was soon picked up by the London Broncos Academy. It had a massive influence and, and, a, and a spread that we hadn't seen the likes of before. Um, has it, has Sorry, no, sorry, I thought you'd finish. You, can, you carry on, Phil. No, sorry. I was just going to say, it really gathered some kudos and some momentum. And the way it worked, and why I say it was a really good governance model, was that um, the, the the independent management group that ran it, of which uh, Lionel Hurst was the chairman and obviously a charismatic figure in his own right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tre Trevor Moss, who was an administrator, um, he, he made sure that obviously... The fixtures were, were in situ. There was a disciplinary. The RFL appointed and paid for the match officials. And, and we developed this governance model that had a, a pre-season meeting. Uh, it had a, a, a mid-season get-together just to make sure there were no issues. And it had an end-of-season awards. And all the clubs wanted was not to be involved in the running of the competition, but just to get a set of agreed fixtures at the beginning of the year, play their games, see how far they got. Now, some of those clubs were ambition-based, so in, it, original winners were people like Crawley Jets, um, mm. Steelers, but they weren't really there for the long haul. But some of the clubs that are still around, like Birmingham Bulldogs, who are celebrating their 20th year, Coventry Bears, Telford, they're still around. Um, and, and I think it was a, a brilliant grounding. It was It was massive for the sport. But unfortunately, this being rugby league, it fell by the way. <laughs> Um, but in some ways, it hasn't um, completely been a failure, has it? I mean, you just use the name, you, know, you named a few players, for example, um, 
And I'm sort of thinking to myself that really, if you're a good rugby league player and you were born anywhere in England and, there ha- and you happen to be within cooey of a club, there's a chance that you could potentially have a pathway to the top. Secondly, um, you just use the name Coventry Bears. And yeah. they are essentially at the same place where clubs such as Batley and, and Dewsbury and uh, even Halifax, sometimes, you know, I could list all the names from from 100 years of rugby league. They're, they're mixing the same circles now, aren't they? And, a, and a, I suppose are a successful um, uh, example, uh, an example of a successful franchise, if you like. Yeah, they made a decision in 2015 to become a, a semi-professional club and are, are currently in League One, which is the third tier, alongside you know some, as you say, some some very famous names that have been there for mm. 120 years. They're at the point now where um, I think they're looking for further investment to enable them to compete at the highest level they possibly can. And yes, they have come through this system of the rugby league conference, but the the amount of clubs that are uh, still in existence, you could you could list on the fingers of one hand, and one of wow. the reasons that is, uh, unfortunately, is that because of cost-cutting measures at the governing body, uh, mm. the sport lost all its development officers, and they were really important actually in the regions to to help develop and further these clubs. When when that uh, position is no longer there, it makes it so much harder and. Uh, it goes very, very much back to the, the initial history of the sport that has never really quite decided where it should direct its resources and whether that is in expanding and spreading the game or staying where it's strongest. And I think one, I think that problem gets highlighted when the resources that you talk about aren't vast. So um, I'll give you an example. Over in Australia, as we speak, there's a guy called Clive Palmer, who you may have heard of in, in good old Blighty, but he's a big businessman. Um, he's got more money than sense, I think. And whatever media channel you turn on now, whether it's TV, a TV channel, a radio station, or on the internet, Clive Palmer is running for the Senate and the uh, and Parliament. Um, when you've got that much money, you can throw it everywhere, can't you? And that's that's the opposite problem that rugby league has. It, it has always had a limited budget. And yep. therefore, it's got to choose its battles. And um, you're right. I mean, that that uh, whether we expand or, or save what we've got has always been a, a been a problem. That probably leads me into the next sort of question. I mean, I always provide questions to to people who are taught to Phil, but just like you, and just like whenever we spoke back in the day, you know, it, I can throw the list of questions out the window. We just start talking <laughs> about rugby league and its issues. But I did, one of the questions I did ask was. I've been back to England a few times since I moved to Australia and moved around the game, and I can't help but feel that rugby league in England has got massive challenges ahead. Yes. Um, and because this is the Hard Yards podcast, podcast, it is dedicated to those doing the Hard Yards. So it's dedicated to those at the amateur clubs, dedicated to those at the conference clubs or or what they, what they are now. Um, it's dedicated to fans. What would you say are the biggest issues facing the game in the UK? Um, I mean, you've mentioned one. You've talked about funding. I mean, what, what you know, 20 years ago when you were part of that launch of the Summer Conference, did you think you'd be here now talking about these issues or do you think it'd be a bright future? And where do you think we'll be in 20 years? I know it's quite a broad question, but see what you can do with it. I think the the first thing to acknowledge is that the sport is at a crossroads at the moment, and that happens on a cyclical basis. 
Um, it really does need to decide what it wants to be in the modern professional environment um, with all the competing influences. From a, um, having been involved in trying to promote the sport for so long, I think one of the biggest issues it's got at the moment is its lack of profile. Um, yeah. I think that then uh, moves into areas of why doesn't it attract the commercial finance it should. Um, and I think it's down partly to re-identifying what it actually offers in this current sporting environment. It can be a big minority sport for as long as it likes. And the one great strength that the sport will always have is it, it has an underlying resilience. But yes. at some point in the modern globalised sporting world, you need to become a small, minor, a small majority sport. You need to move your status. And to do that, you have to take yourself out of your geographical confines, um, which is something I've always believed in anyway, because I think if you if you promote yourself as the greatest game, which is something I fundamentally disagree with anyway, I think you've got, you've got to have that bestowed upon you rather than, than <laughs> hold yourself that. Then yeah. um, you should have the confidence and belief that wherever you take that game, there will be people that will enjoy it. I don't think you can call yourself the greatest game and, and then restrict yourself um, geographically to to the narrowest possible margin that that doesn't appeal to to mainstream broadcasters and 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 major commercial sponsors. So I think we're at that identity crisis um, area where there's a major debate to be had over the next two years to as to what the sport here is going to look like to appeal to its broadcast partner, which at the at the moment is Sky, and there is a renewal due in 2021, and and the fear is that if they don't come up with at least the same amount of money that they've been supplying uh, for the previous couple of negotiations, then the sport itself is on shaky ground as a full-time sport at the elite level. So I think that the main issue is what does it want to be and what does it want to look like over the next five to ten years? And I'm not sure that there is a strategy document out there that tells us that. <laughs> I'm also sure that a split now in governance between Super League going on its own as a, as a marketing enterprise and the rest of the sport, which is ostensibly run under the Rugby Football League, which looks under... Uh, looks after the Championship League One, the community game, uh, England internationals. Uh, again, once you've split that as a as a governance, I'm I'm not sure how you come up with a strategy that is a whole game plan. So I think mm. all of these things are really important at the moment, and I don't see anybody driving the vision for what the sport needs to look like in two, five, ten, or twenty years' time. But this isn't a conversation we haven't had before. No, no. I, I, I sort of use the analogy, rugby league's almost like uh, it's just trying to keep the ship afloat most of the time and there's some holes in the vessel and we're filling the holes and uh, it sails for a little bit but then another hole pops up. Sort of glazing over what you said there and just coming up with, with my thoughts quickly. I'm a firm believer, and I've said this on the podcast in, in previous weeks, that rugby league needs to get the forefront of streaming. So... Um, and we seem to go for the the quick, not the quick book, the big book when it comes to our broadcast um, partners, if you like. So Sky TV money has obviously kept rugby league clubs close to a flow for the last two decades. If the world is, is going in the direction that we all think it's going, or all seem to think it's going in, most people are going to be watching TV and therefore sport, on devices. Um, Great Britain is a, is a big population, so it's a bit different to Australia, but 
there's a lot of people, I believe now, a lot of my sort of friendship group and wider, who are getting rid of Foxtel, which is the Australian equivalent of Sky. So in response to that, what Foxtel has done is brought out an app called KO where you can get all the sports for a lot less. And therefore, you watch it through your phone or your laptop or your tablet and you stream it through your TV if you want. Um, I know a lot of people are doing that. And these things tend to mobilise a lot quicker in a country like Australia because there's only 24 million people. In in Great Britain, there'll be some people who are still in the habits from 20 years ago and it's a bigger population. And that's why newspapers are still sort of surviving in England as well and doing quite well and still have a lot of pull. I think... English Rugby League, and I've been saying this for a few years, really needs to get on the front foot as a streaming sport because I can't see Sky TV, Phil, saying that they want to pay the same amount for Rugby League for the next... for the foreseeable future, for the next 10 years. I just can't see it. Can you? And I I think think the issue that they've got at the moment is not even so much whether the sport has an appeal. And, And obviously... That's going to be determined by viewing figures. Um, and the viewing figures over here this year have been quite encouraging for, for Sky Games. I, I think there, there is an issue as to how much that affects attendances actually in ground yeah. and getting yeah. that balance between coming up with an event that has an atmosphere attached to it and one where a lot of people are watching it on television and it feels like a mausoleum. But the, the media <laughs> landscape itself is changing and I don't think Sky can afford rights for anything other than uh, as much football as it can lay its hands on, and it, and it's lost obviously the Champions League over here, which we've all seen how that's turned out this season, and, mm. and I'm sure they would have loved that. And and mm. Formula One, and those are the the big two products with the big rights um, uh, attached to them, and anything else it goes under the under the bar. So I think you're right that if we didn't get as much money, it may not say everything about the sport, which I think has some some issues it needs to address if it's to continue continually appeal to a wider sporting audience rather than just a rugby league aficionado audience. Uh, But also we have to be cognizant of the fact that um, whatever we come up with by way of streaming has got to be of quality. And I think Mm. because because you need to charge for it. Um, The bottom line is that the governing body has an app over here called Our League, which is streaming a lot of games, but they're free at the moment. Well, if you you get something for free, it's, you know, you you can't. No value. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think, you know, sorry to interrupt the, um, I was talking to Nate Gladden, who's from the USA, and he lives in Washington, D.C., and he said he was in a pub recently, and all he could find was AFL. Yeah. AFL. Now, an American wouldn't know an AFL ball if it hit him on the head or her on the head, but the the AFL are obviously on the front foot when it comes to, I'm a big believer, Phil, that every... A big percentage of people who look at our game end up liking it or loving it. Yeah, There's not that many people who look at Rugby League and go, this is rubbish, I don't ever watch it again. There's not that big a proportion. The challenge is putting it in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And that's why I think... That's why I think streaming is important because even the Premier League sides and the Premier League in itself as a as an organization is going more down the route of signing up with Amazon or Netflix or Facebook because this is what people do and are continually doing and I think we we need to go down we need to think laterally you know we as much as we switch to the summer game 
we're still stuck in 19th century in many ways. We still think people are going to turn up on a Sunday at three o'clock or a Thursday at eight o'clock and walk to the ground and um, buy a hot dog and a beer or a hot dog and a coffee. And I'm not so sure that that, that washes in the model, modern corporate, but also um, fan climate. I'm not sure that washes anymore. And I think, your facilities have to be top notch for for people to want to turn up. You, it needs to be easy to get to, and I just wonder if instead of fighting that fight or trying to fight that fight, because we've had a go at it for 120 years, and, and our KPIs aren't going up, are they? <laughs> They're going in the opposite direction. I, I I think we've got a far more fundamental issue, um, and that is that through no fault of our own. The history of the sport that keeps us going, that provides the traditional tribal rivalries. I mean, the, the big attendances over here are still the Derby fixtures. Um, they are built on um, the northern industrial working class England that doesn't mm. exist anymore. So even mm. at community level, you know, every working man's club, every pub, every school, every industry used to have a link with the sport and they've all gone uh, yes. you know, just to take the mining industry, for example, which was such a, a saviour of rugby league, not just in you could whistle down a pit and get a prop forward, which which actually was true. But all of the the industries were sponsors. All of the people that worked That's in right. were, were fans. Um, you know, part of Leeds in, to the south of the city is Hunslet. And if we were having this conversation 100 years ago, there is absolutely no doubt we wouldn't be talking about Leeds. We'd be talking about the Myrtle and Flame. And that was because that was the centre of the British Empire's light engineering industry. There were 20,000 people who lived in Hunslet in back-to-back -back houses and Parkside, the ground of the great Hunslet club, was right in the middle of that. And in 1907-08, they were the first team to win all four cups. Now, <laughs> the fact is, if you go through Hunslet now, it is a, a, a junction on a motorway. And that's it. It's a series of yeah. light industrial units, uh, yeah. very, very little living accommodation. Most of the people who who do live there are of ethnic origin and quite rightly and understandably don't have a link with rugby league as their core sport. So, you know, whilst whilst coming up with a, a format and a formula that recognises our history, we also have to acknowledge the fact that that history isn't there anymore and we do have to reinvent ourselves. And you talk about a, a, a major modern uh, neutral sporting audience, people that will look at events necessarily rather than an allegiance to a specific team. And again, I think that's where the whole expansion debate comes back into it, because with with the greatest respect to, to Castleford playing Warrington, if you're not a rugby league fan, you don't know where those places are. You don't know what no. they mean to the no. local communities. But if you sit down on a Thursday night when there is no soccer on in the on a Thursday evening, on a beautiful sunny night, and you've got, I don't know, the Tigers playing the Wolf Pack, it honestly doesn't really matter where those clubs are. As long as it looks colourful, vibrant, the ground is full, it's an occasion. Um, and we, we haven't yet realised that that's actually the move we need to go down. We're definitely, we're definitely not striking the right chord, are we? There's something... We, we, it's almost like we're trying to do the same thing that we've done forever, and it, it ends up it ends up biting us on the bum. Um, we both agree on this. We need more eyeballs on screens. We need to show show more people what we've got. Phil, we could talk forever, but I've got yes. I've only got I've only got an hour for this podcast. Right. And this five minute interview has already been twenty three minutes. So <laughs> how, how, about, how, Sorry. how about 
no, you're all right. How about we save it for the fortnight and uh, we'll just keep developing the conversation and you just keep letting everybody else know around the world what's going on in the UK and hopefully there's some positives in there too. <laughs> I, I think there's two things with that. One is um, we are of Northern English stock, therefore the negative always outweighs the positive. <laughs> and we are, we're natural cynics and so we should be because that enables us to ask the right sort of questions. But Correct. As I mentioned right at the very beginning, the one thing that is always going to keep rugby league going, and I've never known a year when somebody hasn't told me that it's going to die, is that it never will because of the inherent resilience of the That's people right. um, and, and the character that actually uh, defines the sport itself. So, uh, yeah, it's not about being negative or positive. It's always about being realistic. Realistic. Phil, you have been awesome. It's been great chatting. We'll speak again in a fortnight and we'll do it on this platform because it sounded really crystal clear. Excellent. Look forward to it. Take care and stay warm. <laughs> Will do. I'm just going to put my coat on and go to Odsel. Take care, mate. See ya. From the UK to the other side of the world, Australia report, Anthony Bomber-Breeze. Report time. And the man I have on the line, Anthony Bomber-Breeze, before we go any further with the chat about Rugby League, can you please congratulate me on my soccer team in the English Premier League winning said title over your team, Liverpool? No, no, congratulations there. Um, we, um, we, we want to go a little bit further and win the Champions League, which makes you the champions of the world. But, but you're the champions of England. Congratulations. Let me tell you something. England is in Europe and is in the world. And if you're not champions of England, you ain't champions of Europe. You've, you've merely went, won a knockout. And talking about knockout competitions, Mr. Bomber Breeze, um, I believe that, well, we'll start, we'll start in your locality. Um, I believe it's the SEQ Chairman's Challenge this week. Yes, um, that's um, our first rep carnival for the year for our seniors and under-20s here, where Ipswich, Gold Coast and two Brisbane teams go to fight it out to make the next step after this first step. So Let's, let's have a trivia question. Which coach won the tournament in the last few years in, um, from Ipswich? Which coach? Let's have a trivia question. Uh, there was a fella from Ipswich State High. Um, I can't mean, <laughs> it, it was a, an English fella from State High, but it, it, it was you, Lee. That was a yeah. great year where we went and smacked, smacked what, all them sides. And, and who's, who, who's looking like the favourites this year? Um, well, we've seen a couple of the teams, but there's been a few pullouts in all the teams. So, But obviously, Brisbane, they're, they're the strong teams. They play in the BRL competition, so which is obviously... The next up, which is like your reserve grade side for the intrust side, so they're obviously they're going to be a bit fitter, but doesn't mean they're more skillful. So no, no, and it's always interesting to see what they'll do over over eighty minutes, and anything can happen. But in that competition, it's seventy minutes, isn't it? Because yes. they play it back to back Saturday and Sunday, and are also um, uh, also have a points tally at the end and. And points for for leading at half time and things like that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how the points are worked out: half time, full time, and then obviously when it gets so tight, it goes down to four and against. So, so every point's vital in this. Game. Now, now, is it just in Southeast Queensland that rep stuff is going on this weekend or this month or whatever? What what else uh, is going on? Um, also up towards uh, North Queensland. Well, obviously Toowoomba, a bit further up the range from here. We've got 
Toowoomba. They play in a competition which is called the 47th Battalion. It started in 1971, and it goes all the way up to North Queensland, Rockhampton, Central Highlands, Toowoomba, Sunshine Coast, Gladstone, Bundaberg, Burnett. They're yeah. all in this this competition, and that's played on the sunny coast this year, the Sunshine Coast. Okay. So, okay. So, and, and, and how many teams enter that, Bomber? Uh, there's there's eight teams in that in the in the men's Sunshine Coast with the winners last year, and there's also a ladies' competition too, where where six teams play. So the ladies' competition obviously getting bigger and bigger over here in Australia, and especially in Queensland and New South Wales. And what's going on south of the Tweed in sort of in sort of these regions? I know that the Illawarra Newcastle comps normally have quite a strong uh, rep side. Do you, do you know anything that's going on there in terms of? Their comps are about five rounds in now, I think. Yeah, well, we can obviously the the SG Ball competition, which is an under eighteen competition in in New South Wales. There, um, they've reached the finals there, and, and like you just mentioned, Illawarra. Illawarra are the under eighteen champions down there. There's seventeen teams in that competition, which is yeah. basically which is basically all the NRL clubs minus obviously the Queensland clubs in and New Zealand, and then they add in Victoria, have a team in there, West Central Coast and South West, so it's a big competition, and Illawarra were the winners of that this year, defeating Manly. And then the but, but the New South Wales and the Queensland teams, uh, they're sort of like a game model now where um, at most levels uh, they play each other in New South Wales and also in Queensland, and then the winners of each play in a national final. Can you tell us the results of those? National finals, or the winners at least. Yeah, yeah. well, like I just mentioned, the New South Wales one was Illawarra. The Queensland version is called the Malmeninga, which is yep. obviously named after the, the Immortal. That's the under-18 competition. There's 14 teams in that, and Tweed defeated Wynnum this year in that competition. Then the interstate final was played last week. Obviously, the Queensland winners and the New South winners, and Tweed won that 48 points to 14. So they give the New Jeez. South Wales winners a bit of a thumping, really, 48-14. Um, and the sort of like the history of these competitions um, and, and the schoolboy competitions as well, the Queensland team seem to have been chalking up a few victories, haven't they? I know Kibra Park and Palm Beach have won something like three of the last four national schoolboy titles between them, um, whereas it was totally dominated by New South Wales for many a year, wasn't it? Oh, well, obviously, when it did start, right back to the Commonwealth Bank, Cup there, which was the main competition with the Peter Sterlings and all that, that played in. Queensland weren't really up there. Kibra Park was the only school in Queensland that had a rugby league program. Now, as you would know, and obviously everyone knows, Ipswich State High and Wavell, and there's a lot of schools now in Queensland yeah. that all have a rugby league curriculum now. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, um, what, what are your sort of thoughts on the future of rugby league in the two states. So obviously, um, we're sort of going into some of the senior territory, I suppose, now as well. But uh, Queensland have just gone on the back of a, a dominant decade with your Thurston's, your Cameron Smiths, and your Billy Slaters, your Cooper Cronks. It looks like, at the very least, they'll trade series now at the top level. What's your sort of read, Breezy, on the strength of the game in both states, all through the ranks, I suppose? Well, well, obviously Queensland, like you just mentioned, they went through a golden period. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's four players there that that are probably the four best players probably ever played a game in their positions there. So, but obviously everyone goes through that. They're gone now, um, so obviously they got to move on there. So obviously it, it, 
it now allows other Queensland players like the Cameron Munsters now and the, or the Michael Morgans and that to to step up and show that friggin' where the where the future for Queensland and obviously New South Wales they obviously ran into them friggin' good teams and now they're the favourites again this year and they just have a lot more to choose from obviously New South Wales down there the the numbers down there are just just phenomenal so. One of, one of the reasons why Origin is good to talk about on the Hard Yards Rugby League podcast is that when Ray Warren is announcing the teams and Gus Gould in the games, that they actually name the amateur club or, or the junior club that they play for, don't they? They don't name the, the NRL club because it's Origin. Um, uh, do you know of any clubs that have, have, have sort of, um, in Ipswich, where you live, have really provided many of the players that have gone on to Origin? Um, well, there's probably obviously n- not a lot, but in the early days, there hasn't been a lot lately. But obviously, Alan Langer, um, yes, he, he played for Norse and Ipswich here. Kevin yeah. Walters, yeah, the, the Walters boys, they played for Swifts here. So, and now you've got Joe up in Galway who comes from Brothers there. And then obviously, um, Goodner have um, have got some down there. Israel Folau, and he played his sport down there at in Goodner. Before why did you men- Why did you mention that name in the current climate, Bomber? Yeah, well, well <laughs> the first person that came in the head from Goodner there, but obviously <laughs> each each to their own. The um, you know, the, this is the thing about about rugby league. I mean, as much as they're at the top level, so many of them are so connected to their local club still, aren't they? I mean, um. The, the Langers and the Walters in particular are very omnipresent at, at their relevant clubs. So the Walters boys are often visiting their former club in Ipswich, the Bavel Swifts. And the Alan Langer's mum still works at North Tigers, doesn't she? Yeah, she works in the canine. She's been in the canine up there for about 50 years and down there. And funny you should mention the Walters. The Swifts club is 100 years this year. This is their 100th year in the Ipswich Rugby League, and they've got a big dinner on this um, this Saturday. So uh, where the, all the Walders boys will be there, all five of them. Obviously, not all of them reach the high level. It's Kevin and Kerrit and Steve there, but they'll all be there. Gary Coyne's another another name. So, so it'll be a big day for them as well. But but like you mentioned, they do get back, and they you go to North down there, the Alan Langer names up there, photos are up there, and everybody in Ipswich know who Alan Langer is and knows that <laughs> from North. So. The uh, well, if you're going to the dinner this weekend, Mr. Breeze, after what you said a few weeks ago on the Coke Zeros, I hope you don't eat too much of the food. Thank you so much once again for a, a really detailed and uh, excellent overview of what's going on in Australia and uh, uh, your Parramatta team. They're about as consistent as wooden spooners might be, aren't they? Well, they're eighth on the ladder. If you asked me at the start of the year, um, would you be eight after nine rounds? I'd, I'd be happy with that. But obviously, that's um, a bit of embarrassment last week there on Magic Round at Suncorp there. Ran into a red-hot Melbourne Storm team. and You got... boys, I've got to take what you what you can get because it's been slim pickings for Parramatta for far too long. Oh, Breezy, boy. Breezy that... thank you. You take care. You enjoy your football. In a couple of weeks, let us know the outcome of all these games that you've been talking about. All right. Nice to talk to you, Lee. Cheers, bud. See ya. Women's Rugby League in Australia. Kim Dreyer. I have on the line our female rugby league correspondent. 
Kim Dreyer from Shreya, or after last one, Kim, we might call you Controversy Kim, because <laughs> I keep getting emails about the girls and women's game in southeast Queensland. We'll we'll update everybody on that a little bit later, but uh, after last time, I think we'd best start with a positive. What what's going on? What 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 are the girls and women doing, and and how are you? Uh, I'm not too bad at the moment. Thanks for asking. You are. Um, <laughs> So just an update from the Tasha Gale Cup down in New South Wales. The grand final was played um, on the 5th of May and this year the Illawarra Steelers got up over the Newcastle Knights, which was good to see. What are the Tasha Gale? Is that under 18? Uh, that sure is, down in um, New South Wales competition. Now, I thought Cronulla Sharks were the big fish, excuse the pun, uh, down there in the girls' game. They were the big fish, but the Steelers have uh, come on on top in Newcastle. Um, so they look like they, they did quite well with a 24-12 win. Over the night, so uh, just look, just looking here. That's the third yeah. different premier. So, yeah. twenty seventeen, the Penrith Panthers won. Twenty eighteen, yep. the Sharks were the big fish, and now the Steelers. Newcastle have just lost their second grand final in succession. Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, Canterbury Bulldogs have won their second wooden spoon. In of succession. course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> um, what about up in Queensland? What's the latest? Um, so we've just had our opens and under eighteens. Um. Maroon State of Origin tryouts, okay. which has been um, quite a good success. Had a large number of uh, 18 girls turn up for that. Um, and when, when does that side get selected, uh, Kim? Uh, but believe it's um, beginning of June. Okay. They're going to be selecting that team. So they've, they've got like, um, they'll be culling it back down to a, a certain number of plays in the next few weeks. Quite a long selection process, isn't it? How, yeah. What, yep. what, what's involved for the girls? Um, so they've been in camp. Um, we had around. Um, that was played with all divisions at one field, multiple fields, but one ground, um, where selectors were, I'm guessing, selecting um, players for that um, SEQ um, and Maroons Queensland team. Um, So, yeah, they're just going to camp, which they've done already. Um, And then there's ongoing um, training uh, from that through development, I think. And then they choose... And I I assume the Blues are doing something similar down there Yeah, I I would say they would be... um, so we'll see what happens <laughs> with that. The, the um, well, obviously, I mean, if some of these selection issues don't get tidied up very soon, then mm. there's a chance that we could see some girls miss out on selection. I mean, um, my email has not stopped since the last time Controversy Kim was on my podcast. Doesn't surprise could, me. <laughs> um, can you update us on the story? So for those who didn't listen to the first podcast. <clears throat> There's a lot of girls in the southeast Queensland region who've been told that they have to play under 18s, even though they've previously signed for this year and been accepted by the NRL uh, database, if you like, to play opens football as in seniors. Mm. Um, and now, in an attempt to form an under 18s competition, for want of a better term, there's probably a bit of pressure on these girls to come down and play under 18s, isn't there? Yeah, so um, there's obviously been rule changes in the last two years which have impacted the 18s playing up into an Opens um, age division as well, which hasn't yeah. helped. Um, what we've had in the last week is an email go out to 29 displaced uh, under-18s players in the Gold Coast region asking them to form a Gold Coast United team. So um, I believe that has occurred and that team will now be registered in the under-18s competition this weekend. I've seen that, I've seen that email. Um, um, and yep. I also saw on that email that <clears throat> mm. 
there was a meeting and there was instruction not to talk about anything else. Yes, uh, it was made made very clear that no conversations will happen outside of just forming this 18s team and getting this team up and running. Obviously, now you're, sorry, go on. Sorry, no, sorry. sorry. It's it caused a bit of controversy for the other 18 um, teams that sit together now um, that will be registered to play given that the other five teams have had to pay full fees and there are girls that are playing out of their club in other clubs within the southeast Queensland that haven't been offered the same um, compensation, I would say, to play. And, and it's, it's sort of been thrown on the girls, hasn't it? So I've got one email here from mm. someone. Uh, yes. I've been asked to keep them anonymous. Yep. But, um, anonymous, did I say that right? Anonymous. Anonymous, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, that basically, they only got told in May. So they've sort of probably been training with the team since January. Um, yep. uh, one parent seems to think that that her daughter has missed rep selections. Yes. Um, obviously, boys are being mm-hmm. promoted and celebrated for playing up into men's teams, even though they're 17, 18. Um, That's right. Um, three families um, have been are of the belief that if they keep if they don't stop talking about this issue, yes. Um, they There'll may be an impact on rep. Their kids may miss out on yeah. rep opportunities. And I, that, I've got this in writing in front of me. And that, and I would 100% agree with that. They, okay, these so parents are quite, that. quite frightened that? to talk up because they know it's going to impact on their children's future. Wow, um, wow. with rep. So, yeah. Um, it's funny, you know, Kim. Um, this is also happening around the development fees scenario. Mm, yeah. Um, I've had many people, many uh, club officials, both from junior clubs and Queensland Cup clubs, talk to me on the yep. basis of. An- anonymity, if only yes. I could say the word. But, yeah. <laughs> anonymity. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's not a good culture. Um, no. I've also had it made aware to me that some girls have actually walked away from the game. I mean, uh, we've had a rough number on that. Oh, I couldn't even give you numbers. I'd have to get the data for that, but there's been quite a few. So even if we just look, for instance, at the club by the name of Waterford up here, yeah. they had a hundred and I think it was 132 girls registered in 2018 to play. Yeah. Um, this year they have 61. That's nearly a 50% drop. Mm, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the issues that I that, that sort of isn't quite right is that obviously if a girl is playing with Opens, other Opens girls, mm-hmm. she builds up a bond with those women, I should call them. Uh, you yes. Know, they build up a bond and all of a sudden to get uh, extracted from that team and say you've got to play under 18 is a tough yes. to swallow. I have yep. been digging through the rules though and... Um, I do see that the the QRL mm-hmm. I've got in their rules that, um, and I'll I'll quote it as it's yes. written in the book. Right, mm-hmm. a junior player, and this is for both genders. Yeah, junior player is a player who has not attained the age of eighteen years during mm-hmm. the course of the football year. Yep, and therefore they're not allowed to uh, apply to be a senior player unless mm-hmm. um, they are subject to the following exemptions and consents at the time of registration. Um, And then they say, um, confirmation by the club that the junior player has fulfilled all commitments to their junior grade competitions. Yep. Now, it's very easy for the governing bodies to stop it right there, isn't it? Exactly. Right? Number uh, number B. (laughs) B, part B. Mm-hmm. Written consent to the registration by the coach, regional manager, yes, and parents that can be stopped right there too. Mm-hmm. Um, if that same uh, 
motion is sort of moved around. Yep. Um, so basically, you've got to get some people uh, around around the game to to agree. Now, yes. Obviously, a professional club, obviously a uh, Queensland Cup club. Yep. They can easily get uh, if everyone's on the same page. They can get that permission that they've satisfied the junior requirements. If this is coming down from above, if you like, mm-hmm. this can easily be stopped. What's in place to sort of challenge that? Well, at the moment, there's nothing. So we've had players who've had parent, coach and club consent for them to play up in an open age division. So then that's yeah. gone through to the QRL, um, yeah. who've then agreed and then withdrawn it. Okay. So that therein lies your problem, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, so therefore, there's only a few courses of action I suppose mm. you can take. You can try and find out the discrepancies <clears throat> in the boys, um, like as you are. Yes, which we're, we're doing at the moment. But also, I mean, there is a possibly a case. I, I think I think the answer to this is that the game needs to allow them to play both, and and that and that's ultimately what we're wanting because yeah. we know that these girls are only going to be playing in the opens division next year a lot of them have already some have already played a year in opens at 17 so it's kind of stepping back in that yeah. in that way yeah. so yeah. even if it's like I've talked to different coaches and different players and parents and even if it's a girl that's 17 turning 18 this year given 10 minutes to play in an opens competition just so that they got that development and they're getting that skill base, they know what it's like. Because it is a jump from a junior league to a senior. So it's kind of giving them it's kind of like the NRL having reserve grade and you come up and play reserve That's grade. That's right. And the problem the problem in the girls' game, Kim, is that there's not quite the amount of playing resources there like there is in the boys mm. in the men's game because the game isn't quite as big as the boys and men's game yet, is it? So mm, no. You know, definitely not in Queensland. I mean, yeah. It's um you know, there's only so much of this resource to go around, mm. um, and they're trying to squeeze as much juice out of the mm. orange as they can. What yeah. What have your little group done in the last two weeks to try and move this? Move this. Um, so we've responded to the email that came out with regards to the the team um, for the Gold Coast. Um, like, really happy that these girls are going to be given an opportunity to play in a team and they aren't walking away from the game. That's first and foremost. That yeah. makes me happy. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it's still not solving the issue no. that a lot of the players have. So we still want to have that meeting. We still want to sit down with the QRL and go, this is what we've got. We don't want to just go in blind, obviously. We want to go in with some idea and give them feedback and, and whatever it is we need to do because the rule we know is in place for the women. We know that there's boys out there that are playing in opens competitions and they get exemption, not an issue. Their exemptions approved straight off off the bat. Like, and obviously queering, um, I think it's point 10 in the operations manual from the QRL around the eligibility and age groups. And that's changed about three times in the last eight months. So it clearly says for us, the eligibility rule per the QRL's rule book, 4.1.3 4.1.3 says that if you're 17, you're eligible to play any senior grade only if there is no under 18 competition available in your local okay. league. Yeah. So for us, if we've got 17 year olds, which we had 29 of them in this, the Gold Coast area, didn't have a team, why weren't they allowed to play in an opens competition? Mm. So, <clears throat> what's the next? 
steps, how how long till that competition starts? Um, that competition has already started, and unfortunately, the under 18s in the SCQ only has now the six teams with the Gold Keys team coming in. Um, and what did it have previously? It had five, so one team was having a bye each week. Um, yeah. We're up to round three um, this week. Um, they've already had one forfeit um, in the competition. And oh, as I previously for, for said, what reason? just not enough players, or? not enough players. Um, and that's the same as I think I told you in the last um, podcast we had, there's the numbers of forfeit for 18s competition is quite high yeah. in the SCQ. So um, we're still not seeing like, it's not, it's a competition, but it's not a competition if you know what I mean. <laughs> Just like the development fees issue, yes, Kim. yep, yep. Just like so, the development fees issue, the biggest yep. loser here are the players. Yep. And to top it off, got a phone call today to be informed that the school system here in the southeast Queensland metropolitan and east are now refusing to put in an opens girls team in their competition. They have the numbers, they have people wanting to coach the team, but they don't want to do it. And that's from the QRL. So which is another shame because that's another massive stepping stone as a rep level for um, our under-18s. So, Some of this defies belief and probably uh, explains some of the reason why after 120 years of this sport, we're still yep. big on the sporting landscape, as big on the sporting landscape as we all want it to be. Well, yeah, and we should be. Yeah, um, I agree. Kim, yep. you've not been too controversial this week. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we have food, some positives. I believe I will. you're a bit crook. I am at the moment. Thank you, what about What about Pommy like me saying the word crook? crook. You take care. <laughs> you take care. We'll speak in a fortnight. Keep keep fighting. You do I a will. Good job. Thanks, Lee. Take care. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Jeez, that was a long one. I hope you enjoyed it though. Uh, plenty of issues and plenty to talk about. Next week we're back with our emerging nations. You'll hear from our American correspondent again, Nate Gladding. How good is he? I'm also going to talk to Michael Carboni from the uh, Emerging Nations Rugby League uh, themed podcast, the Chasing Kangaroos podcast. He is really all over the game and uh, uh, really loves that niche of, of emerging nations. One thing I will stress at this juncture as well is that because of the way we've split the podcast, one week we're Heartlands and next week we're Emerging Nations, in the Emerging Nations I will include some of the smaller rugby league countries that have been around for a long time. So we've, we've sort of clumped together the Heartlands as Australia, England and, and New Zealand, but countries such as France, Papua New Guinea and the like, they are strong rugby league nations in their own right but I suppose they've never really cut through um, to the top level in terms of a competition in their in their country that is high end, high revenue and, and big business so sometimes we will mention those countries and your Tongas and your Samoas and Cook Islands and the like as in the Emerging Nations podcast rather than the Heartlands podcast. I hope I hope that makes sense. This podcast exists to support our mother website, rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. And just allow me as we close this podcast just to mention what that website is. It was set up to be a virtual rugby league club, if you like. It's for coaches, players administrators and S&C coaches and for a maximum of $149 a year and the price is 
can be converted to any currency you like because we have a currency converter online. You can access well over 500 educational videos, uh, game plans, uh, training plans, diet sheets, recovery plans, etc., etc. And the resources are always getting updated. If you've ever tried to buy a How to Coach Rugby League book or How to Train to Be a Rugby League Player book in a bookshop or online, you will notice there's an absolute lack of them. Well, that was until this online resource was created and this is your 21st century book. I keep mentioning the 21st century donor. You know why? Because that's what we're in. And podcasts are the new radio and websites and apps and the like are are almost replacing the old textbooks and rugbyleaguecoach.com.au is that version if you want to get in touch with us go to the web, that that website and message us through that or our social media facebook and instagram is at rugbyleaguecoach twitter is at rlcoach on the net we've loved having you we've loved to see where all our listeners are coming from please stay loyal to us keep listening give us ideas And for those of you doing the hard yards in rugby league, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job.